Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Pliming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. And in this season of Talking Theology, it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today, exploring the relationship between science and faith. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. How does science and theology come together to transform the way we look at the world? How has the philosophy of science affected the way we think about miracles in the Bible and today? How might studying history be a bridge between science and faith? And why do we need both science and theology to explore life's biggest questions? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Mark Harris. Mark is Professor of Natural Science and Theology at the University of Edinburgh, where he directs the Science and Religion Programme. Prior to his ordination as an Anglican priest, he worked as an experimental physicist. And our title today is, How Does Thinking About Miracles Offer Fresh Insight into Science-Religion Dialogue? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Mark Harris, welcome to Talking Theology. Hi, Philip. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Mark, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just introducing a little bit about your own journey, uh, the sort of things you found yourself studying over the years, and perhaps just give us an insight into your current role and what that involves. Certainly, yeah. Well, um, I think I've found over the years, and and I've been around quite a while now, so I've had a chance to observe myself. I realised that I get bored quite quickly, so I've moved through quite a few academic fields. I started off studying earth science at university, and I still have a great fondness for that subject. But it led me into physics in my PhD, and I ended up doing research in Oxford as a postdoc there, working in a field called condensed matter physics, particularly trying to understand magnetism and the sort of the basic quantum mechanics of magnetism. And that led me, because I, I think I, I became more and more interested with what, what is science about? What's it doing and what does it mean? And at the same time, getting very heavily involved in the local church I was going to, um, it lost several clergy and wanted some help with preaching. I was asked to give it a try as a sort of an, as a scientist and enjoyed it so much that I started thinking about ordination. So to cut a long story short, I ended up studying for a degree in theology. And um, as a rather kind of arrogant physicist, I think I probably assumed that I knew it all in, you know, in, in sort of sketchy form beforehand. And it would probably be fairly straightforward. But I was, you know, to my immense delight, both of those things were wrong. And I've ever since, you know, I've found a whole world of wonder, really, in theology. So it's completely transformed the way I look at the world and look at myself and the way I think as a kind of scientist, now theologian. And then I went through various jobs in university chaplaincy before finally, 10 years or so ago, settling in the University of Edinburgh and um, starting up and now leading their science and religion programme. You've described yourself as a physicist working in a theological environment. Just tell us a little bit about how those sort of two fields came along. You've given us a kind of CV or biographical approach, but what does that feel like to kind of bring those questions together? Perhaps it was through your theological training. And where did that sort of land for you? 
Yeah, I always feel slightly embarrassed about that um, that tag I have for myself of a physicist working in a theological environment because I know it sounds really pretentious, but it, it sort of works insofar as I'm in. You know, I work with with a lot of theologians, but I just don't think like they do, and I don't see the world and my subject like they do either. I'm still definitely see myself as a physicist and we constantly have crossings of wires simply because we just just don't think like each other so I found it simpler in the long run just to describe myself as a physicist working in a theological environment because that's my my primary identity is I think in terms of what do I know as a kind of someone interested in the empirical nature of thought and science and what do I know about theology as such and I think that probably describes how I have been since a, since I was a teenager and first came to Christianity in any serious way as a scientist when I before I discovered theology I was frequently asked how can you be a Christian and a scientist surely there's some conflict so I, I sort of carry about this conflict in myself, but I've never felt it as conflict. So the long and the short of it is that I find this slightly pretentious title um, to somehow carry the weight or the sense of what I mean when I say, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a theologian, but I really think like a physicist. That's a rather long-winded answer, I'm afraid. You've already alluded to the fact that theology, as you say, transformed the way you looked at the world. But you've also said that as a theologian, you don't think like other theologians. I know you've written about the way the word worldview is perhaps more useful for talking about the different perspectives that people bring to the table when they think about the relationship about science and religion. Now, in this series, we're exploring a number of different approaches about that kind of dialogue. How would you describe your own worldview when it comes to that relationship and dialogue between uh, science and religion? I think the reason I use worldview is because I find it easier to negotiate the issues involved when you talk when we talk about science and religion. And the reason I say that is because these terms, science and religion, um, it's very easy to throw them around in conversation in our modern culture. But when you try to define each term, you begin to realise how amorphous they are. And in fact, it becomes almost impossible to define them in any really secure way. Of course, you can define individual sciences and individual faith traditions, but trying to capture the whole edifice of what science means or what religion means actually becomes enormously difficult. And you realise that the two terms, science and religion, are closely entangled with each other. And we now know from historical study that the, the term science as a thing and religion as, as, as a kind of thing that all human beings might know about, they, these terms tended to arise roughly around the same time in the 19th century and, and also around the same time that Darwin published his Origin of Species. So it's kind of no accident that we tend to use these terms often in conjunction with each other, often in conflict with each other, and often when thinking about the, the historical flashpoints like Darwinism. So to cut a long story short, I tend to use worldview simply because I find it an easier way of capturing what's going on when we talk about science and religion. Because a lot of the talk we get engaged with about, you know, what is science? What is religion? Should they conflict? Should they be in harmony? Is slightly missing the point about why are we having this conversation in the first place? And a lot of the, a lot of the reasons about why we're having that conversation is because of our modern secular worldview that we all have almost unthinkingly really we, we live in this world where it seems natural to talk about science 
and religion as two opposing things. Um, and we don't often ask why it's natural to think about that. And so th this is why I, I personally find the whole worldview context or worldview terminology helpful to, to think in that way about what, what is science and religion? What are we doing? You've mentioned that you said, I don't think like they do relating to other theologians. Give us a couple of insights into kind of some examples, perhaps, of how that's been the case for you and how you've observed that to be true. Oh, I suppose. Yeah, I see it everywhere, actually. So, for instance, if I go to a seminar in the University of Edinburgh on a theological topic, it will nearly always be orientated around some theological great person from the 20th century or perhaps, you know, past centuries. And so we would always see things through that great figure's eyes, but of course interpreted through the you know flotilla of different interpreters down the ages. And I often find myself getting, in my weaker moments, I suppose, getting rather exasperated because I want to know the truth of the matter. I don't know, I don't want to know what Augustine thought. I want to know what really is the matter, what really is the fact of the matter. So, and I think that's something about the ways that as a scientist, I have this implicit belief in the real world and, and you know, in reality. Whereas philosophers and theologians have a, a rather more cautious approach to questions of, you know, on, in, in philosophical terms, you might talk about ontology, metaphysical questions, without going, they, they, they prefer to go through these very traditional ways of discussing them before we ever get to talking about what really matters. So I find myself getting impatient by this. And then I always have to remind myself, you know, no, no, I've, I've learned the tricks of the trade here. I I have to step back and, and think carefully through the epistemologies before I get to the metaphysics. One of the things which I'd love to explore with you today, Mark, is, is particularly the question around the nature of miracles, where I know you've written and thought and spoken, both miracles specifically and the more general field of divine action in the world. And I know that's a particular kind of interest and focus in terms of the science and theology, theology dialogue. I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking us back to first principles and just outline the different ways in which the science, uh, discipline of science, has influenced thinking around the miraculous over the last X number of years. Yeah, so this is where we get back to the problems of definition again. And I'm not just thinking about the definitions of science or religion, but actually the definition of the term miracle to begin with. And it's very difficult in our modern age, and I use modern in the technical sense of enlightenment and afterwards, so 18th century and afterwards. Um, it's very difficult in our modern age to avoid this character, David Hume, whom I see every single day in Edinburgh because on, there's a huge statue of him on the Royal Mile. He's one of our one of our favourite figures of Ed, from Edinburgh's past, even though he was treated pretty poorly by the university at the time. Anyway, David Hume... Um, one of the things he's famous for is for offering a definition of miracles, which has stuck really firmly in our modern consciousness. He defined a miracle as a transgression of a law of nature by the deity or another invisible agent, you know, a, an angel or a demon, something supernatural anyway. If you go out on the streets and ask people what they think a miracle is, it won't be long before you get that kind of definition being offered to you. Now, clearly, this definition sticks because it serves the whole conflict between science and religion uh, message that is we've imbued in our modern secular culture. And probably it's Hume's definition of miracle has been contributory to creating that whole sense of conflict. It's certainly been contributory 
for creating this sort of strong divide we have in our when we think about what is reality we, we know what it means to talk about nature and the natural world um, largely because of thinkers like Hume and we would think about the supernatural um, as being something just so totally other that we we can't even make contact with it or see it or feel it touch it or so on um, so we have a very so- strong sense of divide between the natural and the supernatural. And much of this comes down to Hume's thinking about miracle and his definition of miracle that I mentioned. So I, I think that this definition is very important, like I said, because it, it kind of feeds into our whole thinking about secular culture. What are we doing? How do we see ourselves in this kind of metaphysical view? Now, if you go back to before Hume, to scientists like Newton, for instance, where the whole ideas of laws of nature started to really take hold in in the new sciences, Um, they had a slightly different view. So Newton and his friends set about trying to support the idea of miracle by looking at laws of nature. And it became a bit of a cottage industry to argue that the miracles of the Bible were definitely more believable if we could find scientific explanations for them. Now, of course, we would just think that was explaining the miracles away and making them not miracles at all. But back in the day, um, that was seen as defending the miracles and making the Bible seem more uh, more authentic. And then if you go back before Newton still, you have much more fluid and complex understandings of miracle, which often emphasize the kind of theological messages that might be seen underneath them rather than whether it's something to do with nature breaking or not but yeah we've got caught up in this slightly unfortunate i suppose because it's a little bit shallow um, this understanding of miracle where it's all about whether nature is working properly or not so in the light of that let's think of Anne about some classic kind of miracles in the bible i know you've written about the the key miracles of the book of exodus the, the you know the flight of people from Egypt into the promised land. But also another one would be the resurrection of Jesus. Can you just map out for us the different ways in which perhaps those classic miracles have been received and understood? Yeah, that's a really great question. So it turns out that the miracles, the miracle stories in the Exodus, particularly things like the plagues of Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, have received a huge amount of attention from natural scientists over the last few decades. And there's been quite a lot published about them where people have speculated about, oh, well, perhaps what happened here was some kind of earthquake that triggered a tsunami which parted the waters and, and Moses and the Israelites were just in the right place at the right time. So you find that there's quite a lot of these naturalistic explanations of miracles in the Bible. And many of them succumb to this kind of approach. And of course, that was exactly what Newton and his friends were doing back in the day. So it's not really a new approach. But the, the, the miracle story that people always single out as being, well, how do you explain this one then, is the resurrection of Jesus. Because as far as we know, uh, no one has found a scientific explanation of you know, someone coming back to life from, the, from, the, from genuine death. So, so this does seem to stand out. And I'm often asked about this one and its relationship with science. Well, the resurrection is amazingly complex in terms of Christian theology. And again, if you look at the many different ways that people have tried to interpret what was going on down the years. You'll find, and I'm being very, very simplistic here, a kind of divergence between objective interpretations on the one hand and subjective on the other. So the objective interpretations would say that Jesus was raised in some sense 
in which it's a real sense in the world. It was either his body, you know, his the atoms in his body or the cells in his body really did come back to life. His body came back to life and he walked about again. Or it was some kind of spiritual resurrection where, again, you know, it was it was objective. It was just about a, a, a dimension of reality that we we don't know about spiritual perhaps but it was objective it was something that re that happened in reality the subjective interpretations on the other hand would look at the disciples and their consciousness and say that well perhaps this is something that happened in terms of a collective hallucination or or perhaps they developed this story of resurrection as a kind of metaphor to explain their kind of some sense of mission that they developed to the world so you get um Straight away, that divergence between objective and subjective interpretations. But notice that the only one of those various interpretations that I mentioned that the natural sciences can say anything about at all is really to do with bodily resurrection. So there's a whole suite of other interpretations that the natural sciences don't really have any handle on, although psychology could probably say quite a bit about them. So a lot of the key debates about the resurrection aren't really so much as what really happened but what do you think it really proves? And this is where you discover that it's actually a matter for theology and what exactly do we believe that God was doing rather than what was going on with the atoms in Jesus' body. So can I ask you, therefore, where does this land for you, if I may, in terms of engaging that text as a scientist and as a theologian? Let's perhaps start with the resurrection, if we may. Where, where does that land for you in terms of asking that question, what does it prove? Yeah, so I'll have to give you a kind of a pers- bit of personal, bio- more personal biography here. So before I ever came to theology, when I was just working in mainstream science, I think I used to have a fairly traditional Christian Orthodox faith with some niggles, particularly about questions of miracles and creation. But it, it wasn't really enough to keep me up at night. And it wasn't until I started formal theological training that the doubts really began. And for several years, particularly when I started learning about biblical scholarship and the kinds of critical questions that scholars were raising about how did the Gospels arise and how can we be sure in historical terms that, you know, authenticity and things like that. This started me really worrying and about the miracles of Jesus and the resurrection. You know, how could I know this was true if we have this whole school of scholars who are saying, you know, treating these books as as like secular histories? How do we know this is true? Uh, I I started worrying intensely about this. And I think for, for a year or two, the whole lot came tumbling down. The natural scientists had nothing to do with this, really. I think it was more history that, that, that was worrying me at the time. I managed to find a way of managing these doubts and building my faith back up again, I think, largely by being exposed to what the early church had done in handling these debates. Back in the, the early centuries of Christianity, we often call this uh, patristic theology, and particularly the controversies about who exactly is Jesus Christ is he God and human? If so, how could that possibly be the case? And so you have um, various famous councils, like the Nicene Council, like the Council of Chalcedon and so on. And I um, was learning about these as a student that, that helped me, first of all, realise that there were other people from nearly 2,000 years ago having similar worries, and also realising that they found ways of not resolving the worries, but living with them. And I think that gave me a great deal of strength, or at least some sort of resolution anyway. 
So I, I found that I was able to, to build things back up again, largely by learning a bit more theology. And where did that help you land in relation to the resurrection, specifically perhaps, or, or more generally, if you like, the, the miraculous in Scripture and, dare one say, the miraculous in the world today? Yeah, so I think that helped me land with a much more eschatological faith than I have now in the sense that thinking that my faith was based on an event that happened in history 2000 years ago and that it all you know it was intensely important whether it happened or not I started to realize that it was that my Christian faith was just as important depending on what will happen in the future to come when God steps in somehow and brings about fulfillment, new heavens and a new earth. We have all these metaphors, some in the book of Revelation, some in the Gospels, about the the, the coming eschaton. And I think I began to see my faith as uh, hope as much as certainty. Certainty in the historical past is certainly, you know, an aspect of it. But I think it started switching much more into the hope for the future or and hope for God's purposes in the world. And discovering that, as I said, you know, the patristic theologians nearly 2000 years ago had had many similar thoughts to me was comforting. Well, I, it wasn't as though I was discovering the same thoughts as them. I was often being led by them when I, when I read them and found that, ah, yes, that's how to put it all together. Does that leave room, that sense of faith as hope as much as certainty, and that future-orientated eschatological perspective on faith, does that allow for surprising, dare one say, miraculous ways of God to be at work today? Is that something that there's room for within the worldview that you find yourself inhabiting as a physicist working in a theological environment? Uh, Yes, definitely. To be absolutely frank, I'm always amazed by the faith that ordinary people put in science um, as though it has the answers to everything. One of the I mean, I've been fascinated by the COVID-19 pandemic over the last 18 months or so, because we've all become scientists now and we've all overall debating the the immunology and virology and so on. And and we all realise just how the community of scientists aren't agreed on a lot of these questions and the doubts that they have and the ways in which things can go wrong. And yet, you know, over time, the scientific process trundles on and actually finds amazing vaccines. And, you know, it's a real um, testament to the power of the scientific method. It's extremely faulty, but it comes up with the goods in an amazingly short amount of time, and suddenly we see all this progress. So I think it's quite right to sometimes speak about the miracle of science. It's a good example of why science, faulty but also amazing uh, as well when it does its job, that the people sometimes put a bit too much faith in it existentially, as though it has all the answers, and therefore it, if, it, if scientists tell us there are no such things as miracles, we should believe them. So I personally, I'm really quite open-minded, although I also think that Christian tradition teaches us to be cautious about miracle claims, not to accept everything. Uh, I think the very nature of them is that they are challenging, and they're always meant to be challenging. And you can see that simply by looking at miracle stories in the Bible and the way that uh, characters at the time sometimes are sceptical so um, I yes, I'm not a I'm not a complete an unbeliever in miracles, if that's what you are getting at. I'm, I'm not, but I'm not I'm not someone who would who would just be completely uh, open to miracles either. I think it's important to have a certain amount of kind of critical reserve. 
as you were beginning your kind of within your theological studies, you mentioned the fact that you didn't go back to science necessarily in asking the questions, but history. I'm interested by the fact, therefore, you managed to combine science, history and theology in a fairly rich way. What was it about history that and perhaps your scientific approach to history that was helpful for you? Being a very arrogant physicist, before I studied any theology, I thought there was nothing very interesting about history either. But it was through historical study of the Bible that I, you know, I just found it was so immensely challenging, but it was also immensely engaging as well, for me anyway. I mentioned earlier on that I have a very kind of empirical way of looking at the world. So in other words, you know, I like to know what, what is the evidence that we're dealing with here and how do we interpret it and what are the different ways in which we interpret it, you know, in other words, what what methodologies do we bring to bear? And since so much of Christianity rests on the scriptural traditions we've inherited, as well as the creeds and councils and so on that we refer to, and the traditions of theologians down the years, um, much of this is historical in the sense, you know, it happened long in the past, and we have to bring the tools of history to bear in order to, to try to understand how we might make use of it today. So I think I found history very useful because it engages my kind of empirical mind. It it forms quite a useful bridge with theological thought, I suppose. In the science and religion world, you'll find that a lot of people are philosophers and like to think philosophically, because that's the bridge between the sort of scientific and religious world. For me, it's more history that's the bridge. You talked about that ongoing dialogue between science and religion. You direct Edinburgh University's programme for the Advanced Study in science and religion. Tell us why and it may be that you take us back to those COVID-19 insights that you mentioned earlier. Why do you think continued research into this dialogue matters more broadly, both for the, for the university, for the research sector, but also for ordinary Christian communities up and down the country? Yeah, that's a great question. And the COVID-19 pandemic is an excellent example of how how little we understand science and the way it goes about things. So the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, I mean, a terrible disaster for us. But on the plus side, it has taught us a lot about how science works, faltering, but also it can make miraculous steps forward as well. So I think one of the things that the science and religion field can do for us is that it, it does engage with what is the meaning of science and how does science go about its thing? Um, and what's the relationship between that and what we might believe as religious believers. So it's useful from that point of view to help Christian communities, for instance, try to understand what's their relationship with science in their society. And that leads me on to a second reason why science and religion, I think, is pretty significant in in public life as well as universities, going around for a long time now, that Christianity should see science as maybe not an adversary, although some Christians do see science as an adversary, but at least something that isn't quite a friend anyway, something that you might want to distrust or keep at arm's length. I think growing up as a teenager and then a scientist in my 20s, I never really understood this because, you know, here I was being a scientist and I was perfectly happy with my Christian beliefs. But clearly, one of the functions of the science and religion world and the discourse is to try to overcome this sense of distrust and to try to investigate why do we feel this and what are the ways forward what are the ways around it but I suppose most importantly of all the reason why I think the science and religion field and dialogue is important is because it deals with issues that no other subject can issues of really ultimate fascination and importance 
questions that we all have from time to time, like, you know, is there purpose in the universe? What's it all for? What does it mean to be a human? Was I born simply to pass my genes on to the next generation and then die? Or is there more to it? And how would I know? And how might the various forms of inquiry we make in sciences, philosophy and theology, how might they complement each other, reinforce each other? And the only subject that I know of that deals with all this is science and religion. So I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of the ultimate subject, really. So I, I, I can wax lyrically and get rather grandiose about it, but uh, it does deal with grand issues. Can I um, bring you down back to your own personal story, Mark? You kindly shared a little bit about what that journey has looked like from a 14-year-old through to somebody studying condensed matter physics and then taking us through to your studies in theology. How does navigating, um, embracing the richness of the science-religion dialogue land with you in your own faith, worship and prayer today, if I can ask? Yeah, I think that um, I would actually want to answer that by putting it the other way around. I would suspect that the science and religion area, learning about it, teaching it, researching it, has actually done very little for my Christian faith and practice. And it's the uh, it's my Christian faith and practice that has informed the way I uh, work in the science and religion field. So, I mean, for me, by the biggest impact of all was coming to theology and learning that there was this academic discourse that asked um, explosive questions about history and where did the Bible come from? It wasn't the science and religion issues that did that for me. So, so I think it's, I think I put it the other way around. And if that is the other way around, what are the distinctives of those theologically explosive questions or even practices and disciplines that are helpful for you as you work as a scholar and as a person of faith yourself? Well, I think one thing that it's important to bear in mind is that, um, and too often I I hear this said between the lines in a way, a sense of not regret. Actually, no, yes, some, some of my students who've been trained theologically, I think regret that they haven't done more with the sciences or feel that they somehow are lacking as um, scholars because they've only studied theology or only studied philosophy. And I think that sometimes we are a bit too apologetic if we come from a a faith perspective, or if our we're primarily thinking or you've been trained in theology, like I said, I would suggest that it's actually pretty important to have people who are trained in those disciplines and who think in those ways. I don't think that way, but I'm very, very glad there are people who do. And that um, it's worth, from a faith perspective as well as the academy, having theologians and them being not being apologetic about what they do, even though theologians face a bit of an uphill struggle being accepted in our modern culture and modern universities. But I think it's a, it's a struggle that's worth carrying on with. Well, you've certainly given us a great invitation to do just that. Mark Harris, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thanks very much, Philip. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall within St. John's College, Durham University. This series of Talking Theology on the relationship between science and faith is being brought to you in partnership with the project Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science. For more information about Cranmer Hall, please visit cranmerhall.com.